0: Lord, thank you so much for this day, and I just thank you so much for this topic. Um, What a fun topic to teach, Um, and we just thank you so much, God, for all that you did through Martin Luther and just um, how much he means to us, Um, Lord God, as as Protestant Christians, and I just pray, God, that we would um, just be so grateful and appreciative for all that you did, and I just pray, God, that I would do um, the subject justice today and uh, that we would just have a good um, Sabbath rest and a good worship service. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> Um I'm definitely probably going to go a touch over 10:20, just because I got so much to go over. Only got two sessions left, so please, if you have kids or if you guys, you know, really want to make sure you're in the service in plenty of time, please don't feel bad about leaving. It doesn't like bother me or offend me or anything like that. But I'm probably going to go to about 10:25, 10:26 ish, just so that you know, and you can go back and listen to whatever you missed online just so I can get as much in as as I can over the next two sessions. Um real quick, we're gonna focus a lot on Martin Luther today. Um but my focus today is not so much gonna be on Martin Luther the man, the person, which is a fantastic and amazing topic. And I encourage you to read about him uh, uh on your own uh if you give the chance. If you haven't seen the movie, it was it's it was made quite a while ago, it was maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, but there was a really good movie, um, starring Joseph Fiennes. He was kind of a fairly big name in Hollywood for a short period of time. He hasn't done much in a while, I don't think. I don't know too much about him. Uh, but, it, but it, just in case you're, you're trying to find the movie that I'm talking about. Um, it stars Joseph Fiennes, and it does a really, really good job. I really encourage you to watch that movie. It doesn't go into a ton of the theology of the Reformation, which is unfortunate. Hopefully most of you guys have resources that that you can understand that side of it. But just to get an idea of the man and the person, uh, it does a really good job, okay? He doesn't really look like the real Martin Luther very much, (laughs) but his personality and temperament uh, is very similar to, to the real Martin Luther. I don't agree with everything in the movie. Some of the scenes are not totally historically accurate. It blends things, it gets things out of order, da da, da. But overall, as just a general gist of, of the man's life, um, it's a really good movie, okay? Um, I'm gonna go over the Diet of Worms uh, briefly in this class. Please, um, I would um, encourage you, I'd really more ask you, um, just as homework, just to type in the Diet of Worms speech, and one of the first things you'll see come up on YouTube is the scene from that movie with Joseph Fiennes. And you'll know it's the actual scene because it says Diet of Worms speech, Joseph Fiennes. It's only about five minutes long, so that's not much homework. Okay, um, please watch that just to get an idea and a feel that scene. I will say from that movie is extremely well done. It is very, very similar to it, the way that the room looks, um, the way that people were dressed. The setup, it's not exactly, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things that are a little embellished or whatever. But overall, it does a really good job of showing what the scene was actually like. So hopefully after the, oh, go ahead, no problem. After the class today, um, if you go back, um, I think that will just be a really inspirational thing just to see kind of what it, it was like uh, for him to go through that, okay? Um, real quick, and I don't want to spend about five minutes on this because I've already spent about two weeks on this. There's just a couple things that I didn't quite get to last week. And I'm going to be real brief, okay, on my list of some of the corruptions that were going on. And then we're going to dive right into Martin Luther. Okay, there was three things that I didn't quite hit on. Um, or no, four things. I'm going to be real fast. Okay, it was nepotism. <clears throat> pretty self-explanatory. The popes used to put in their illegitimate children as like archbishops and bishops and cardinals and stuff. As young as 15, 16 years old. Okay, nepotism in the church uh, uh, was out of control. I want to make sure I get my... List up here so I don't forget anything. Um, the next next one was priestly ignorance. This one got so bad it almost became a prideful calling card amongst the priests to show how ignorant they were, that they were just in it for the money and to sort of abuse people. Most of them would just learn a few Latin phrases, okay, uh, in their education so that they could perform a church service and they literally knew almost nothing else. Even priests in the Middle Ages who tended to not be the most educated, all right, for the most part were godly people who wanted to help the people and they oftentimes would say, look, I'm not an expert. My job is sort of to, to, to perform the Mass, okay, Okay, to do this church service, if you really have deep theological questions, who should you go and ask? Does anybody remember from my handout? Who were like the theologians and kind of the teachers of the day? Does anybody remember in the Middle Ages? Okay, The monks and the nuns. And there would usually be a monastery nearby, and they'd say, please go ask them. They would help them. They would set up appointments. So there was a sense in which they weren't, even, even ones who tended to be more ignorant in the Middle Ages, were still trying to do their job and help people. Okay, By the time you get to the late Middle Ages, okay, just up to the time of Martin Luther... It's really, really bad. Most people were just going to Mass. The, pe- the common people don't know the Bible. Even the priests don't know the Bible. And remember, it's not really going to be that helpful to send them to a monastery or a convent because as I talked about last week, what were the monasteries and convents? What did they become? Extremely corrupt. Many of them were just like glorified brothels. All right? So again, just ignorance across the board. Now, there were, there were theologians and stuff around, but again, overall ignorance of scriptural truth was at an all-time high, Okay? All right, Uh, next one would be the Mass. I can't say a ton about this just for the sake of time, but just so you know, going all the way back to when I talked about church government, okay, the idea that uh, pastors were called priests on some level. I talked about it first. That didn't start out as this horrible thing. There's even some theological I don't, again, don't get me wrong. I don't believe we should call pastors priests, but there's some theological truth in that they're sort of, in some ways, not in all ways, a continuation of the priests of the Old Testament, okay? But then, as the Middle Ages developed, they became this desire to say, well, if they're priests, they should be more similar to pre- priests of the Old Testament. And therefore, there became this desire to say, well, then they must sacrifice something. And the question became, well, what? And the answer to that was, is that they are re-sacrificing, or, or, or the way they would technically put it, and the way Catholics put this to this day, is they're representing. The sacrifice of Christ every time they give the Mass. And that that is an actual sacrifice for the temporal punishments of your sins that we talked about last week. Okay, And as part of that, to make it seem more kind of realistic, more like fleshly, more like blood. Because remember how much the Old Testament talks about blood sacrifices? In order to uh, make that more palpable to people, they said that the bread and the wine become what? his actual literal body and blood. You're actually eating the flesh of Christ. You're actually drinking the blood of Christ. They say it still looks like uh, bread and wine. The accidents, the you know, the outward appearances and all that stuff stay the same, but you are literally eating the body and blood of Christ, okay? And so that was something that took place uh, in the Mass. Even Martin Luther did not completely eradicate himself from that belief. Neither did John Huss, okay? But even though they still believe there is a sense in which you're still eating the body and blood of Christ, they were vehement against the fact that it is a re sacrifice uh, or a representation of the sacrifice for your sins over and over and over again. Okay? All right, and then the final one I'll talk about, and this one got really bad and really out of control, was relics. Okay? There was this idea that there was just tons and tons of bits and pieces of the saints' bones and teeth and uh, bits of the ark and bits of the cross, okay? Um, All this stuff, all right? And you'll see this on sort of... Superficial Christian TV today, but again, it tends to be kind of on the fringes. I'm not saying it's not bad and it doesn't have an impact. It does. We'll talk about that next week. Um, but again, it tends to be more in the fringes. This was like mainstream stuff, okay? And you would go to like churches and monasteries, right, where you would literally pay to see good money, money that oftentimes Christians couldn't afford to see these relics. And that was seen as you could get indulgences from them. That was part of your penance, so on and so forth. And I would say, again, you could talk different historians would say different things. I personally would say probably about 80 90% of them were just what? Fake. Hoax. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just just garbage. And you're basically this industry of just soaking the people drive this money, okay, is completely based on this sort of uh, hoax type thing, and it's being run by the church of Jesus Christ. How utterly sad and pathetic is that? It was bad, okay? This is the scene. I've set it up for a couple weeks, okay? This is the scene, okay? Alcoholism. Sexual immorality, poverty uh, uh, po- poverty in some places, for sure, okay? But definitely an ignorance of God's word, okay? Things were really, really bad in Western Europe at this period of time. Now, in some sense, there was sort of this glossing over that, as they talked about. The Renaissance sort of hid a lot of what was going on, okay? But everybody knew this, and it was really, really bad. All right, so uh, on your handout, okay, um... Number two, uh, number one was what we've been going over the last two weeks, the heterodoxy, okay, that led up to the uh, Reformation. Number two, actually getting into Martin Luther himself. Like I said before, I don't want to get so much into the man Martin Luther today, because just for the sake of time, what I want to focus on more is what God was doing, all right? Oftentimes when people teach on Martin Luther, they'll focus a lot on his theology, okay, the, 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 the fantastic speech that he gave at um, the Diet of Worms, but a lot of times they won't set up the full political scene, and if you don't do that, you don't really see, it's not so much about Martin Luther, it's about what God was doing through Martin Luther. And you'll see there's just a lot of providential things that are going on, all right, that made the Reformation possible, okay? The reason that the Lollards weren't stronger is because the Catholic Church, for the most part, squelched them. They, they burned them, okay, they uh, uh, imprisoned them, they persecuted them, so on and so forth. Same thing with the Hussites. John Huss himself was burned at the stake, died singing hymns, okay, to God. Uh the Hussites were basically limited, okay, to their little tiny small country, Bohemia. And right up until the time of the Reformation, the the um uh, uh Western Europe was poised to take over Bohemia and completely wipe out the Hussites, all right? And this is something important you should write down. It's not that Martin Luther was so great and fantastic, although he was pretty cool, don't get me wrong, that it was solely by his sheer strength of will that he made sure that the Reformation survived. That's a load of baloney, and if we tend to think like that, we're really detracting from how God was the one who was the driving force behind the Reformation, all right? Martin Luther and the Protestants would have been squelched just like the Lollards and just like the Hussites if there were not certain political things in place that allowed the Reformation to move forward, okay? And those are the things I'm going to focus a little bit more on rather than Martin Luther himself, okay? All right, real quick, A, his monumental impact and its meaning. Well beyond just Christianity, which is obviously what I'm going to focus on the most, and I'll get to that in a minute, but well beyond just biblical Christianity, which is the most important thing to us in this room, I cannot stress the importance of the Reformation, all right? The Reformation led to the modern world. Now, there's a lot of things about the modern world that are not great, okay? But this sort of all the, the advancements that were made after the Middle Ages, all the technology, all the education, the scientific revolution that's really led, okay, to um, people's lives being better in many, many ways uh, today. Okay, the scientific revolution was absolutely a product of the Protestant Reformation. All right, so again, it goes well beyond just his impact within the church. All right, the Protestant Reformation had huge impact worldwide. All right, does anybody know what is probably the number one thing outside of I'm talking about the church? Okay, um, the biggest impact the Protestant Reformation had upon uh, the world. Does anybody know? Universal education, okay? Sorry, I didn't, I, you raised your hand as I was saying it, sorry, no. Universal, this was a radical, 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 I cannot say that word enough notion at the time. Even Aquinas, as I talked about, who really was pushing, the church needs to be more educated, not just on theology, but broadly. Even Aquinas would have said, Okay, but we're not going to go and and teach every, you know, young boy and peasant girl. That doesn't make any sense, okay? Martin Luther was emphatic. Even some of the later reformers sometimes were somewhat ambivalent about this, and it usually was the sort of general consciousness of the Reformation that would sort of correct them and say, no, we're not going back on this, all right? Martin Luther was emphatic that every single child, it doesn't matter how poor, it doesn't matter how lowly their station is, boy or girl, should be educated, first and foremost, okay, in Scripture, okay, in sound theology, but then broadly speaking after that, all right? And that absolutely changed the world. That is what led Western Europe to becoming so advanced. That's what led to America becoming so advanced, okay, and that has spread, okay, to many other regions of the world. That was a big, big deal. So again, the Reformation is not just about what the church... we got to remember, sometimes we can so so focus on supernatural grace, okay, that we forget about God talks a lot in his word about what? Does anybody know what the other common grace? Thank you, okay? Common grace. And sometimes common grace comes completely apart from the church. Jesus talked about God sending rain uh, and you know for people's crops, so on and so forth. But having said that, the church is oftentimes one of the primary ways God brings about his common grace to people. Feeding people, taking care of people, so on and so forth. And the Protestant Reformation okay, uh, uh, brought huge blessings to the world. From the time of Martin Luther until today, all right, it is a historic fact. Put it in the book. It's a fact. Other religions cannot dispute this. Protestant countries, with all their problems, and I'm going to talk about in my handout that I'm going to talk about a little later, Protestantism has not been perfect, okay? It has its issues. But Protestant countries, write this down, have always been the most advanced countries in the world, hands down. Okay, they've been the wealthiest, they have been the most advanced, okay, they have been the most influential, and they've had the most opportunities to help other countries by far. All right, and that goes back to the Reformation, okay? So as Protestant Christians and as particularly Reformed Christians, we have a right, okay, to be very proud of our heritage, all right? We have become sort of the minority in the church. A lot of people look at it as a sort of legalistic Calvinists out there, okay? But if you really know our history, it is something that we should not be ashamed of. It is something that we should be very proud of, okay? Yes. All right, very good. Um, as far as the church itself goes, all right, common grace. But this is the most important to us in here, okay, is, obviously, all that stuff I've been going over for two weeks, Martin Luther just tore it down. I mean, not, not him alone, but I mean, he was sort of the first step. Absolutely tore it down, and this is so important, you should also write this down in your handout, okay? The high morality of the Protestants was also a historic fact. So much so that the Catholic Church had no choice but to react All right, a lot of people don't realize this, okay? But the Counter-Reformation, all right, was where the Catholic Church sort of cleaned itself up. The reason it felt the need to do that is because so many people were leaving Catholicism, all right, oftentimes, sometimes, not even always for the best theological biblical reason, but just because they were sick of all the garbage I've been going over for two weeks, all right? And they were saying, look at those guys over there. Very similar to the early church, okay, where people's lives, okay, were very attractive to people in Western Europe. People saw Protestants, all right, as people who were clear, sincerely sincere, on fire for God, and that meant a lot to people, okay? And again, I hope this this dispels this myth that is so common in the church today that you can separate theology, okay, from our practical lives, all right? The early church was all about the Bible and sound theology. Now, I talked about they didn't always have access to as much scriptures they were being heavily persecuted. It was tough. But the church, you read the church fathers, you read people like Perpetua that I talked about, they longed to know the Bible more. They didn't have this like, oh, you know, theology is so boring. Can't we get to practical theology? That's kind of what you have today in the church today. No. All right. It wasn't that they were against practical theology. All right. But the focus was on God. There was this obsession, I want to know more about God. I don't find God boring. All right? I like learning about God. All right? Learning about myself and what God gives me is secondary. Okay? Obviously, uh, you know, first and foremost, our relationship with Christ, but sort of all these kind of practical benefits that are there and taught in Scripture, don't get me wrong, that the church sort of obsesses over today, that was not the obsession of the early church, and that was not the obsession of the reformers. Okay? Their first and foremost uh, focus okay, was on theology, uh, in general and theology proper, okay. Who is God? What is He like? And what has He done? The focus is on Him, and from that flowed, all right, a passion, okay, to live for Him and to be pleasing to Him, all right. Oftentimes, when we focus too much on practical theology, I'm not saying we should not teach and 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 have a focus on some level, but we overly focus on that. We tend to think that's going to make Christians stronger. It doesn't. It actually makes the church weaker, and we're seeing that today, okay? Where the evangelical, American evangelical church is so obsessed, all right, with sort of practical theology, all right, the day-to-day workings out, all right, that again, the church is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker, all right? And we need to sort of turn that around, all right? And that was sort of the emphasis of the Reformation, all right? Okay, all right, real quick, Martin Luther's background. Before I get into the person himself, I want to talk about that political background that is so important to understand. All right, in Western Europe, if you guys read my handout on the Middle Ages, the way things worked, all right, is you had what was known um, as Christendom. All right, all of the different countries were seen as part of Christendom, and Christendom was seen as ruled over by two spheres, or they called it two swords. You had the secular sphere, or the secular sword, which was ruled over at the very top by the emperor, and then underneath him were Two groups of people, okay? Uh, Kings, okay? Sometimes queens, but mostly kings, all right? And then within Germany itself, you had what was known as the princes, all right? Now, and then on the spiritual side, okay, you have the church uh, ruled over by the priests and the bishops and at the top, the pope. Not all the countries in Western Europe were part of what was known as the New Holy Roman Empire. The New Holy Roman Empire was primarily what is today Germany and some of the countries that sort of surround Germany today, all right? However... The church was emphatic, vehement, that if you were part of sort of Western Catholicism, Western Christianity, and you were not technically part of the Holy Roman Empire, you still had to work closely with the Holy Roman Empire. Does that make sense? Okay, so the Holy Roman Empire was was, was top dog, all right? So even England, all right, um, which was not part of the Holy Roman Empire, they still had to give a lot of deference to the Holy Roman Empire does that make sense and that's why Charles uh, or, uh, excuse me Henry VIII, all right he had so many so many troubles with not just the Catholic Church but also Charles V all right because Charles V was related okay to, to Henry VIII's wife that he was trying to get rid of and it was it was and he couldn't just you know make Charles V angry there was this sense in which he had to give deference to Charles V who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire so that's kind of the scene that you have going on right now all right now the Holy Roman Emperor at this time. Was who I just said, guy by the name of Charles V. He was uh, 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 coronated at a very young age. Okay, I think like 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. I don't know off the top of my head, but very, very, very young. Um, extremely powerful guy from a political standpoint. All right. He, before becoming Holy Roman I- uh, Emperor, he was uh, the um, uh, King of Spain. All right. Spain at this time was the most powerful country in the world. All right. Does anybody know why? Yeah. Very good. Excellent. Okay. The discovery of the New World. The conquistadors. Okay. We're bringing back hordes and hordes of gold. Very rich. Very powerful. Spain also had recently converted to Catholicism because uh, the the Western uh, sort of Western Europe had conquered all right um, uh, uh, Spain from the uh, Muslims. Okay. For a long time. Uh, Spain had been kind of this mixture of Muslims, uh, Catholic Christians, okay, and Jews. All right, now Spain is passionately on fire. For sort of Catholic Christianity. One of the few countries that didn't give in to quite as much of this corruption. It was, you know, I always talk about the zeal of a convert, okay? It was sort of this new Catholic country, and they were zealous, all right, and they were getting rid of the Moors and they were getting rid of the Jews, okay, and any other group that they did not see as die hard enough Catholic, alright, in Spain. And they had a lot of money and they had a lot of power, all right? And then he was elected. This is how it worked. You would be elected to be emperor, and the people who would elect you, okay, would be the princes within Germany. The princes ruled over all the different regions of Germany. They were not technically fully fledged kings, but they were pretty close. Of their region, they were like king only under the general authority of the emperor. Does that make sense, right? And those princes and then other monarchies would vote on who was going to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And Charles V was voted in. So now he is The Holy Roman Emperor basically in some sense of the word ruling over all of Western Europe, okay, and then very specifically ruling over Germany and Spain, okay, and Spain being the most powerful country in the world at this time. Very, very powerful guy. However, having said that, having said that, he still needed the princes. He could not just, you know, irritate all the princes, because the princes still had what that he needed? Even though Spain's really powerful, they're spread pretty thin. A lot of their military is still over in the New World, the conquistadors, all right? And who is knocking on the door of Western Europe right now? Does anybody know? Muslims. Very good. Okay, led by Suleiman the Magnificent. You might want to write him down, one of the most competent military leaders in all of history, okay? Brutal guy, but very very competent, okay? He has conquered the Byzantine, not he himself, but the Muslims have conquered the Byzantine Empire in the 1400s. Constantinople, okay, has gone. Okay, it's now what? Does anybody know? Istanbul. Okay, alright, yeah, alright, it's, 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 it's part of Turkey, okay? So, um, uh, the, the, Eastern Orthodox Church is still around, don't get me wrong, but they're not part of the Byzantine Empire anymore. All right. And so they're coming up. They've come up the East and now they're on the borders of the Western, uh, Western Europe and they're ready to attack. And who's the first line of defense? It's the Germans and led by the princes. Okay. Charles V. This is so important to understand how God protected Martin Luther and the Reformation. He needed the military support of the German princes. He could not just completely just wipe out Protestantism because he felt like it. Does that make sense? You have all these sort of political things uh, at play. You also have the King of France, a guy by the name of Francis I, and he was a sort of very decadent kind of party. He sort of represented all the bad stuff I've been talking about in the past two sessions, okay? Really kind of corrupt Catholic Christianity. As he got older, he got more kind of devout in his Catholicism, But again, uh, he doesn't really like listening to Charles V or Henry VIII or anybody else, okay? And then, as you guys know, and I'll talk more about this in my handout, Henry VIII is up there in England and he's causing a lot of political problems, okay? Charles V was being pulled like in every different direction. Henry VIII wanted a divorce. He didn't want to make, okay, his uh, uh, aunt, okay, upset, all right? He doesn't want to make the German princes upset. He's worried about Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, he's got all this stuff going on in the new world. Charles V actually, in the end of his life, abdicated his throne and he became a monk, all right. He was just so sick of all of it. He was like, I'm done. OK, so that gives you an idea of all the different ways that Charles V is being pulled. But God used all of that because Charles V could not just unilaterally go and destroy Protestantism, which is what he really wanted to do, because it would have been political suicide. All right. And that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. That's huge. We tend to overly focus on Martin Luther, who I get is a pretty cool guy to focus on. All right, he's one of my heroes. I'm not going away from that at all. But it really was more of a god thing, okay? And that was re- it's really amazing uh, how it all uh, worked out, okay? Um I owe oh, way oversimplified stuff, but I hope that gives a general idea of the political atmosphere, all right? Um and what was going on. If Martin Luther had come around, okay, in say um Portugal or something like that, I don't think the reformation ever would have happened. Right, the fact that he came in Germany at the time that he came in, all right, and the German princes, okay, protected him, all right, is the primary reason. Okay, the Reformation was able to continue. All right, okay. Let me talk really quick, uh, I don't have a ton of time, but really quick about Martin Luther himself, all right? He was raised, okay, by um, pretty traditional, hard-nosed, sort of hard-scrabble German parents. Um, his father was a minor, was actually pretty well off as far as a peasant. Remember we talked about, or I talked about my handout, by the Renaissance, peasants are able to earn a little bit more money, all right? And so uh, his father was fairly well off, all right? But he had a pretty normal sort of German uh, uh, upbringing, all right? Was sort of a cultural Catholic um, but not much more, all right? He was extremely brilliant. His father had enough money to put him through school, and he was recognized as being an extremely brilliant young man from a very early age, but he was very rebellious. He was always known as his teachers, okay? It was hard to keep him in line, or he was always being disciplined by his dad and by his teachers, okay? And a lot of people have made a huge deal about all that stuff. I'm not going to get into that, okay? But it, again, he, was, he had kind of a semi-rebellious personality, he eventually went to um, uh, the university, all right, um, and he got really into partying. He would go to brothels and stuff like that. He was really kind of known as the kind of guy that was the life of the party, all right? Martin Luther, even well after his conversion, all right, was many things, but one thing he was rarely was quiet, all right? He was loud. He was bombastic. He was boisterous. Um, he loved music. He was actually a very talented musician. A lot of people don't know that. So he would go, and he would play music for people, and they would dance, and they would drink, and they would drink heavily, all right, and all this stuff, um, and at one point during the, uh, his time at the university, um, the plague broke out, and a number of his friends were killed. And this really got him thinking about death and all this stuff. And he really said, if I were to die right now, would I go to heaven, all right? And he knew both just from his conscience, but also all the stuff that I've been going over this last two weeks, okay, he, there was no way he was meriting heaven, all right? And so he really began to kind of be afraid of hell and God, but didn't really want to do too much about it. And then he was uh, walking home, okay, from the university on uh, a break. Alright, as most of you guys know, he got caught in a very dangerous thunderstorm. Might sound like, dude, was this guy like a big wimp or something like that? All right, but what you got to understand is in that day and age, thunderstorms were extremely dangerous. All right, a lot of the pathways, okay, in Germany were open. All right, and it's not like today where there's buildings and stuff all over. If you got caught in one of those thunderstorms, a lot of times people would get hit by lightning and you would die. All right, it was it was maybe not quite as common, but it was up there with like car crashes in our day and age. It was a legitimate fear of people. All right, so to us, I know that sounds like, why was he so scared of? A lightning storm, all right? But in that time and age, okay, it actually was something that would, would really terrify you. So he gets caught in this lightning storm. He's out there by himself, okay? He's on a path of road that's not uh, very well wooded and stuff like that. So he's freaking out, okay? He's genuinely freaking out, um, seeing the lightning literally hit hill, hills up uh, in front of him and stuff, and he cries out to St. Anne, all right? It was the patron saint of minors, okay? Uh, uh, St. Anne, save me. I'll become a monk, all right? So he becomes a monk, all right? And he becomes uh, part of what was known as the Augustinian order, all right, an order that had been started recently. You might say, well, Augustine was way before. The order was named after Augustine, but it was actually of pretty recent origin at the time of Martin Luther. Remember I talked about, there were sort of two streams, the really legalistic stream and the more loose stream. The l- loose stream was much more predominant, way more dominant, but there was this minority of a much more strict stream of monasticism, All right, and he joined about a strict as strict as you could get, all right? The Augustinians were tough people, all right? Very tough uh, uh, dudes, all right? And he absolutely threw himself into that. He bought into the medieval system that I've been going over that he could earn his salvation as long as he did all the stuff that they told him to do, okay, so on and so forth. And Martin Luther absolutely just was brutal on himself. I mean, he whipped himself, starved himself, froze himself, all right? He almost killed himself if it was not for a guy by the name of Johann Stoppitz, who came along and kind of mentored him and tried to help him work through some of these things, all right? Eventually, he became a parish priest, um, and he became, uh, uh, he got uh, his uh, degrees in theology, and he started to teach, all right, at the University of Wittenberg. Wittenberg's in a very important city. That's sort of kind of where it all went down and happened, all right? And the first prince all right, to take notice of Martin Luther and really kind of side with him was a guy by the name of Frederick the Wise. He got that name later in life, but the reason was Frederick was about as professional as you could get at playing dumb. All right, he wasn't a really a dumb guy. He was actually very smart, and that's why he later got the nickname Frederick the Wise. Right, but the Pope would send him these letters, and he'd send it back and be like, "I don't really know what you mean. What are you talking about? I don't understand. I'm, I'm not a theologian." All right, he, the Pope would send him legates, okay, would you know, would send him gifts and stuff, and he would kind of just, smile, "Oh, this is so nice. Thank you. You know, tell the Pope thanks." And the guy would be like, "Hey, well, this is sort of giving you a hint. You gotta kind of put Luther on the stake," and he'd be like. Oh no 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 Martin Luther he's just innocent and he's misunderstood and oh no 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 okay just he just his his strategy was to play dumb all right and he was very very good at it all right um and and that really protected Martin Luther for for quite some time all right is by just saying I don't really know what to make of this guy but in real life he really um uh, was actually quite convicted by Martin Luther and really sided with him he didn't believe everything he preached and taught but this general sense of The Catholic Church is in a really bad state and we need something new, something that Frederick the Wise actually very much believed in, okay? All right. um, Jumping ahead, okay? Justification by by faith alone in 1515c. A lot of people have this mistaken notion that Martin Luther believed this was the moment of his conversion, all right? I don't totally agree with that. I don't think that's what Martin Luther was even saying himself. He did quote, he, there's this famous quote where he says, I, upon understanding this, he felt like he was born again. And people have taken that and sort of run with it. That must be when he was actually born again. He wasn't really saying that. He was saying it was like it it felt like he was being born again, all right? That that this is the feeling he should have had when he really, truly was born again, all right? I think he was genuinely converted to Christ, okay, during his time as a monk, all right? Um, and, And from a lot of his writings, I think that that's borne out. But he was very confused, all right? And he genuinely, genuinely, I think, loved Jesus and was trying to do what the Catholic Church was saying. Do these works and you will have peace and you will have salvation. And Martin Luther was like, I don't have that peace because, again... The biggest thing to him was when he would read the law of God because the Catholic Church taught that once you're regenerated, once you're saved, you can keep the law of God perfectly. Now, if you don't, there's penance and all this stuff to fix it, but there is a sense in which you can actually do good works that are fully acceptable in God's eyes. Not just like we as Protestants believe where God accepts them as your father, but before the judgment seat of God. And when he would do these good works in sincerity... All right. And he would compare them to the law of God, which says every work must be absolutely perfect. You must be 100 percent doing it for God's glory. He would say, I'm not doing that. That's not happening. All right. And so once he understood justification by faith alone, it was like eyes opened. All right. Finally, the word of God makes sense. All right. It is possible to be a Christian, all right? You don't have to do all these perfect good works in order to get to heaven, okay? Now, you might think, all right, that was it. All of a sudden, his theology was fixed and perfect, and he believed exactly what you and I believe in here today, all right? Well, that's not how it works, all right? He actually, at this time, still thought of himself as a loyal, faithful Catholic, still believed in Mary, the saints praying to them, penance, indulgences, you name it. He believed in all that stuff. He, But he's just tried to kind of tweak it and rework it in light of justification by faith alone. The main thing, I'm not going to redraw my famous thing, but if you remember, okay, like the two charts, okay, punishment and life, all right, as opposed to it being going from here to the middle, back to the start, he got, he got what we believe as Protestants, that when you place your faith in Christ, you go to here, right there. The moment you have faith in Christ, you go from there to there, all right? And that was, okay, so liberating and so freeing to him. And slowly, slowly, didn't happen overnight, over the next, okay, uh, you know, uh, 10, yeah, about 10 years of his life, all right, from 1515 to about 1525, he's slowly starting to see all these other Catholic doctrines don't work in light of justification by faith alone. But it wasn't something that he realized all at once, okay? All right, now, the real impetus for the Reformation, okay, is the 95 Thesis. If you go down to D, 1517, <clears throat> I'm going to way, 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 way oversimplify this from a political standpoint. You'll have to forgive me, all right? There's so much more going on here, but it would take me three sessions to get through all of it, briefly, all right? Pope at this time is a guy by the name of Leo X, okay? Extremely corrupt guy, I mean, Really corrupt guy. He used to bring in naked little boys, okay, to bring him cakes and stuff, okay? He was just an odd, weird dude, okay? Um, and, but again, popes did crazy stuff at this time and most people just ignored it or accepted it, right? Leo X was, uh, just a very decadent, sort of a gluttonous, okay, kind of a person, right? And he wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica so he could go down as being famous as his great, uh, pope, right? And what do you need a lot of if you're gonna rebuild St. Peter's Basilica? You need a lot of dough, all right, and the way he was going to get this dough, okay, was through indulgences. Remember, the church is bringing in lots and lots of money through relics, all right, and through indulgences, all right. And so he issued a universal plenary indulgence where you just have to come and give a very small amount of alms, all right, and you can have a plenary indulgence for yourself, okay, for a loved one, for a dead loved one in purgatory. It was about as. Let me rephrase that. It was as broad. as the church had ever gotten with this doctrine of indulgences, all right, he made it just as easy as you could be, you just go to the church, listen to the preaching, give your alms, and you're going to get your plenary indulgence, and it was not just in one little area, and if you did this, you climbed up these steps or anything, no, it was across the board, all right, and he hired, okay, a preacher, okay, um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Tetzel, thank you. Johan Tetzel, okay? Tetzel was about as bad as it gets. He's sort of like the TV preachers you see right now, na- you, t- you see today, okay? O- only like on steroids. I mean, he was very gimmicky, uh, just would say anything and everything, okay, that it would take to get people to buy, um, these indulgences. was very, very successful, um, at doing this, okay? So. The uh, the church, okay, and uh, Tetzel are bringing in tons and tons of money, and Martin Luther gets wind of this, all right? And he is furious. Now, mind you, a lot of people think, oh, he had completely repudiated the doctrine of indulgences. No, not at this point, all right? A lot of times people think that the 95 Thesis is sort of this just absolute proclamation of re- Reformation doctrine. It's not. Really, all it's attacking is is the abuses of Tetzel, okay? The abuses of Tetzel in regard to the doctrine of indulgences, even from a Catholic perspective. Tetzel was saying a lot of things that even a lot of Catholics, okay, would have disagreed with. But Luther was so vehement, so strong, so passionate, that it freaked the church out, all right? And there was a sense in which Leo understood, theologically speaking, uh, that uh, a lot of the, what Tetzel was saying was bunk. But he didn't really want to, like, undermine Tetzel, because what was Leo's ultimate goal? Was to use Tetzel to get the money, all right? So he just kind of wanted Luther to shut up. But there was a sense in which Leo and a lot of the leaders in the church couldn't totally condemn Luther, because a lot of what he was saying was not that unorthodox, even from a Catholic perspective of the day, all right? So they never would really kind of go after him completely theologically. They would just say, you know, you're, you're going too far, you need to recant, and that was it, all right? And this is what really got under the skin of Martin Luther, all right? There was a sense in which he really saw himself as submitting uh, to the Pope and the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire and the whole nine yards, all right? All Luther asked, and he did this again and again and again, all the way up to the Diet of Worms we're going to talk about, this is what makes the Diet of Worms so important. He just said, I just want you to explain to me where I am wrong from what? The Bible, that's it. Just show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me your doctrine. Explain where the Bible clearly teaches penance and indulgence. And he was a student of church history. He understood where a lot of these doctrines taught, where where started, excuse me, and that they were trying to deal with real problems. But he's saying, as the doctrines exist today, where on earth is your scriptural evidence, all right? And this is why the Catholic Church, they so could not refute Martin Luther. They started to pivot. All right. Up until this point, the Catholic Church had always relied on Scripture. Yeah, there was this heavy emphasis on tradition and all that stuff. You read the really good theologians from the Middle Ages like Aquinas... He, read the read the Summa. He rarely talks about tradition. He might quote a church father and, as an authority, okay? But if you read the early part of the Summa, he says the ultimate authority for scripture or for the Christian is scripture. He, he sounds very Protestant. If you read the early part of of Aquinas, right? and the Catholic Church began to pivot and say we don't have to prove our doctrines from scripture because scripture is only one stream of special revelation. The other stream is sacred tradition. And pretty much anything that you couldn't find in scripture, they would just say, oh, that's sacred tradition. Now, a lot of times they wouldn't even really try to prove it historically. They would just sort of, uh, just announce that it was sacred tradition. All right. And Luther was having absolutely none of that. All right. Even in one of Luther's earliest debates, okay, with a guy by the name of Johann Eck, uh, uh, all Eck, and, and Luther lost that debate, just so you know, he really did. But the reason he lost that debate is all Eck did was pound Luther home, that he was a Hussite. And Luther kept trying to be like, no, no, I'm not, and then Eck would be like, well, you say you believe this, Huss says this, and they're the same, all right? And after that debate, it really opened Luther's eyes. He said, yeah, I kind of am a Hussite. I mean, I want to go f- further, I want to go beyond Huss, but he kind of realized, all right, that he was not the first to see these things. And far from that being something that was like, Luther looked at as a major challenge, he looked at that as, as an encouragement. Why? Because he said, I'm not the first one to see these things. At, when Martin Luther first got going, there was this fear in him that, like, am I alone noticing these things? That that's a pretty scary thing to place to be as a Christian, all right. And he really questioned himself, like, maybe I just don't see it. Maybe the problem isn't the church and everyone else. Maybe the problem is me. When he started to see that that uh, uh, um, Wycliffe and Huss and so many others, okay, Savonarola and others, had taught. Not the exact same things, but similar things. All right. It was a great, uh, encouragement to him. Okay. All right. So he nails the 95 thesis to the Wittenberg castle door and the Catholic Church freaks out because the indulgences, uh, is under threat. All right. The German people at this time, and this is really important, going back to the political stuff, are, including the princes, are very, very inclined to listen to anything that's critical of Rome. Not so much the Catholic Church as a whole, but Rome, because they felt that their money, okay, was fleeing from Germany and was going into Roman coffers, and it was, all right, and there was a sense in which they didn't like that, and therefore they felt like Rome itself was corrupt, all right, and was kind of robbing them of their money, so when he put this out and his students translated it into German so people could read it, all right, it and this absolutely lit a firestorm, absolutely lit a firestorm. It became, all right, uh, the most popular work, all right, in Germany at the time. It was one of the most popular works, okay, in centuries. I mean, people just were buying, all right, the 95 Theses, and then later would buy Luther's works. I mean, he was a best-selling author, all right? Not just like how we talk about R.C. Sproul being, I mean, we're talking like, you know, on the level of like Stephen King or something for his day. I mean, he was really popular. Um, uh, And uh, um, Martin Luther Never took a penny for any of his writings, which is an incredible thing. Never took a penny, all right? He allowed that money to go to the German church and other things, and he could have earned, uh, for, in his day, what would be the equivalent today of millions and millions of dollars. Never took a penny for any of his writings, which is pretty crazy to think about. All right, the storm just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. It was essential, going back to what I was saying about political stuff, absolutely essential that Martin Luther got the support of at least a fair amount of the German princes, all right? And that was a lot of his focus. He wrote a book specifically, okay, addressed, okay, to the, to the German princes. He didn't convince all of them, but he convinced a number of, of, them, of them, and that they protected him, all right? But this sort of grew and grew and grew until you get to um, E, the Diet of Worms, 1521, <clears throat> And this is where it all was sort of laid out. Martin Luther really genuinely felt that he was going to go to the Diet of Worms, he was going to do his best to present the truth, and then what was going to happen? What did he think was going to happen to himself? Done. Burned. He thought he would be burned at the stake. That was it. And he had done his best. He had fought the good fight, so on and so forth. But Martin Luther said his goal, even if Charles V and the Pope burned him, his goal was to convince the German princes that he already kind of had thinking and on his side to become more solidified in their faith, all right, and to take a stand to protect the Reformation. If he could accomplish that goal, all right, Martin Luther saw himself as accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish, all right? If you watch that scene from that movie, it's really good, okay? And that's what it was like. Charles V was on his throne, and alongside of him were all of the German princes with their funky checkered hats and all that stuff, and that's how they actually looked, okay? All right, and Martin Luther knew he couldn't say a lot. He knew they weren't going to let him say a lot. And the, and the Pope had told, okay, um, uh, the papal uh, legates there, don't let him make any speeches. He's very convincing. He's very persuasive. All right, so he wasn't going to be able to say much, all right, but he had to say enough, all right, to really get those German princes that were already on board absolutely their feet planted in cement. They were not going to budge, all right? Because then Charles V could not just come into Germany and wipe out the Reformation. He could not do it, all right? So in 1521, he is summoned to, uh, to present his case before Charles V. The reason being, the German people had done such an uproar. They said, at the very least, you owe it to us to let Martin Luther present his views to you, all right? And the Protestants were going to use that for the reasons I was talking about, to, to, to get the German princes, all right? A lot of times, we so focus on the speech itself, and it's really cool, it's really inspirational. If you watch the movie, it is. But what I hope you guys understand is what I'm talking about. What makes it so cool is he needed to convince the German princes, and write this down, he did that. The German princes were very, very emboldened after the Diet of Worms, all right? And the gist of his speech, I'll quote it for you in a minute, but the gist of his speech is very simple. It's very simple. He says, look, in so many words, he's saying, we've been debating these things for a long time now. This goes all the way back, okay, to 1517, all right? All I'm asking is for you to show me where I'm wrong from the Bible. And the Catholic Church repeatedly kept saying, no, we're telling you we're wrong, that's it, done deal, no more argument, all right? And the German princes who were already kind of inclined towards Martin Luther found that very persuasive. They said, look, if the Catholic Church's position is so convincing, why can't they just what? Why can't they just prove it? That's all he's asking, it's not a huge, giant request. Just prove it, all right? Um, and later, Catholic theologians would write their works and try to prove it, but this time, there was not a lot of that. A lot of people did not want to debate Luther theologically, okay, because uh, Luther could just quote the Bible like at will. It was really, really in a remarkable thing, all right? <clears throat> okay, quickly, um, at the Diet of Worms, okay, the speech, okay? Um, I might get a couple words wrong, but I have most of it down. He basically says, okay, unless I am convinced by Scripture or by sound reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. So help me, God. Amen. All right? might not sound like much of a speech, but it was so simple, so straightforward. It said, all I've asked is for you to show me from Scripture where I'm wrong. You refuse to do that. What else do you want from me? And the princes were, not all of them down to the Last minute, but they were very, very persuaded by that, all right? So much so, all right, that uh, Frederick the Wise actually had Luther kidnapped, all right, and hidden for a long time until he could come back to Wittenberg. And the German princes, write this down, the German princes were so key, they protected the Reformation. And because of that, the Reformation spread throughout Germany. And then uh, the reformers took it, all right, throughout the rest of Western Europe, okay? All right, going quickly. All right, still have some time. <clears throat> I want to talk, really, and, and from that, all right, I'm going to get more into the, the, the Reformation, okay, after Luther in my handout that I'm going to give out. But really quickly, the, the Reformation spread throughout Western Europe, eventually came to America, missionaries, then took it throughout the rest of the world, okay, and we have the evangelical church around the world today, all right? Really quickly, I want to talk about St. Augustine, St. Monica, and Catherine von Bora. Don't have a lot of time, but real quick. The two biggest influences in Martin Luther's life were Saint Augustine and his wife Katharina von Bora. All right, they um, the the theology of Augustine was always a huge strength and a help to Martin Luther, and. Martin Luther, from all of his accounts, was not an easy guy to live with. He could be difficult, all right? He was under a lot of stress, going through a lot of things, okay, a lot of kind of personality quirks, so on and so forth, and it was Katerina von Bora who really kind of kept him strong. They went on to have a number of kids, I think five or six kids. One died, okay, as a teenager, uh, which was, was very common back th- in those days, but uh, most of their children actually survived to adulthood all of them received Christ and were very, very faithful Christians throughout the rest of their lives, all right? Katerina von Bora was an amazing, amazing woman, all right? And I talked about, I was gonna put St. Monica kind of on the shelf, all right? Going back to St. Augustine, Without Augustine, there'd be no Luther. Without Luther, there'd be no Reformation. But without Monica, there'd be no St. Augustine, all right? St. Monica was St. Augustine's uh, mother, all right? And he was an unbeliever for a very long time, well after her conversion. Very devout, very godly woman. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and set a godly influence for him until eventually he was converted and became one of the most influential Christians in history and was the backbone, the theological backbone uh, to Martin Luther. So really quickly, I wish I I could spend more time on this, okay? Please, please don't un- ever underestimate, okay, uh, a godly mother and a godly wife, okay? I mean, it is something that the Bible praises highly, all right, and we see just the major impact of that uh, in-, in church history, okay? All right, real quick, and I only have a couple minutes, but I'm going to do this. If anyone needs to leave, like I said, it's okay. I'm going to do this real fast, all right? But in keeping with my theme of it being about God, I'm skipping way ahead and I'll go over Calvin and Zwingli and all those good guys in my handout. I wish I had more time to go over them in class. I apologize, we're nearing the end of of my time, okay? But really quickly, towards the end of the 1500s, all right? Protestantism has spread throughout all of Western Europe. Some countries more than others. Spain and Portugal, for the reasons I talked about earlier, pretty tough, all right? But there's tons of Protestants in uh, the British Isles, tons of Protestants in Scandinavia, tons in Germany, uh, tons in France, uh, tons in Switzerland. I mean, it is really, really spread. The Catholic Church has been doing everything it can to wipe it out. But again, for so long, Charles V was just so hesitant, all right? By the time you get to the end of the 1500s, the political landscape has changed a lot all right, now the two head honchos, okay, Germany, because of the Reformation, has lost a lot of its power and a lot of its class, all right, the two main powers in Western Europe this time were Spain and England, all right, Spain was predominantly Catholic, and at this time, by the time the end of the 1500s, England is predominantly Protestant, all right, they have the most money, they have the most military, all right, they have the most influence, does this make sense, all right, so Spain and the Catholic Church, their number one goal at the end of the 1500s was to destroy who? England, okay? England, all right? Because, again, England is so Protestant, all right? If you can wipe out England, all right, you can wipe out the Reformation, right? Anytime, like, smaller Protestant villages or regions or whatever get into trouble, all right, oftentimes, who's the one sending them money and military and weapons and aid? England, okay? England was so crucial and so essential, all right? And so the Pope, okay, uh, um, in uh, league with Philip II, all right, they decided, okay, to try to do a, um, a, an invasion of England, wipe out England, and from there, wipe out the Protestant Reformation. Had they been successful, all right, I'm not saying every Protestant would have died out or anything like that, but it would have been a lot like the Lollards and the Hussites. It would have probably taken longer, all right, but Protestantism would have been dealt a, not maybe not a death blow, but I mean, we're talking about a serious knockout blow serious knockout blow. And it's highly, highly unlikely that the Puritans ever would have come to America and established America, all right, uh, which led to the gospel spreading uh, uh, to the rest of the world, all right? So this was a big deal. And a lot of times in church history, we don't talk about this as much as we should because over time it sort of became seen as more of an English victory. And especially in America, we don't wanna be associated with any English victories. Does that make sense for for for, for obvious reasons? But up until the time of America, this was always seen as a Protestant victory. That's how it was interpreted, and rightfully so, all right? That God did not just save England that day, he was saving the Reformation, all right? What Philip II did, all right, the son of Charles V, all right, end of the 1500s, is he built, does anybody know what he built? Spanish Armada, all right, Spanish Armada was the most fierce, okay, naval fleet that had ever been seen in history up to that point. We are talking hundreds and hundreds of the most advanced, strong ships, and they were absolutely going to flood England. As powerful England as, as they were, they were no match for the Armada. If the Armada had gotten to England, England would have been conquered. I mean, that's just, that's just historical fact, all right? Um... And Philip II and the Pope, okay, did a great job of keeping this sing- secret, okay? If you ever watch Elizabeth II, okay, the movie, they try to tie it into all this Mary, Queen of Scots stuff, and that's a lot of nonsense, okay? It was mostly the Pope and, and Philip II. But if you ever do watch that movie, watch the end scene, all right? It's very, very well done and very accurate, okay? It was kept secret, and there wasn't much England could do about it. They really couldn't rally themselves to put up much of a fight, and they really thought this was the end, all right? What happened was is they did a, a, a pretty common tactic in that day is where they lit a bunch of their own ships on fire and then they sent them out into the Spanish Armada. And that did do a lot of damage, right? Uh, but it was sort of just kind of this first line of defense. I mean, other than sort of kind of saying, hey, we're here, we're going to fight, we know we're going to lose, but at least we're going to give it everything we have. It probably would not have done much beyond that, okay? And then something, and again, I want to be careful as a Reformed Christian, okay, we talk about miracles post-biblical, but however you want to talk about it, an incredible providential event, or if you want to fully call it a full miracle, okay, I'm not going to super argue with that, at least right now here in class, okay, but you have one of the most fiercest storms, all right, that came on the scene, and it came out of nowhere, all right, absolutely, completely took the Spanish totally by surprise, alright, and that fire that had already been lit, the wind, okay, from that storm, it just caused the fire to spread, and the Spanish were freaking out, people were jumping ship, alright, I mean, it absolutely led to total and complete chaos, alright, and the armada was defeated, alright, against all odds Crazy thing. I mean, this literally, the way people described it, who watched it from the shore, was like something out of the Old Testament. Like, this, this storm came, and this fire was just spreading everywhere. And like I said, for 200 years, okay, this was interpreted as an amazing providential act of God in protecting the Protestant Reformation. And it's really sad that we've kind of somewhat lost sight of that, all right? It was not an English victory. This was a Protestant victory. And because of that, the Reformation was able to continue, especially in England, the Puritans then took the Reformation to America. All right, and as we'll get into the handout next week, the rest is history, all right? So again, really pretty incredible stuff. Yes, sir? Didn't they that the Prod- bill blows the Yes, exactly. It was it called the product. That, that's exactly what it was called. Isn't it? it? It was incredible. It really, if you watch the end of that scene, it's incredible. All right, real quick before I let you guys go. Um, I'm going to uh, do my handout, okay? Sue has said that she'll post it, okay, on like Wednesday or Thursday. I know it's more homework. I apologize. Um But I'm going to do a handout on the modern era. It bums me out I couldn't do the modern era more in class. But alas, I have one last session. Please, if you're a regular, read that. Um, and then we'll um, go over the postmodern era or sort of the church today church as it is today, next week, and then we'll be done, okay? But it will be posted. Uh, sometimes, as you guys probably know, when you transfer files, sometimes things don't, you know, so um, when, when we posted the Middle Ages, most of it looked really good, but some of my breakdown, you know, of like ABC, it, it gets just kind of changed to one, 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 all right? Hopefully, you can still track with how I'm breaking stuff down, but if you notice that, that's what's going on, all right? Thank you guys so much for today. I appreciate it. Next week will be the last session, all right? Thank. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>